0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. Still, still the only podcast that reviews horror films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. And I say horror films because we had a pitch the other day that wasn't sure if we only did horror. So I'm going to say that a couple more times. The horror podcast for the horror website, Certified Forgotten. Please send us pitches only on horror films. Horror films, please. Thank you. I am joined, as I always am, by, by my buddy, by my friend, Matt Donato, who uh, who who's who's maybe a little tired today, but still but still kicking in still ready to talk about movies. Is that right, sir?
1: I am tired enough where I want to take a nap, but not tired to the point where this is a terrible idea. So I just might talk slower than usual. Maybe maybe that's how we're going to do this.
0: So what we would refer to this as for Donato is mid-season form. This is like peak film festival Donato, where he's tired enough that he could nap, but instead he's going on like energy drinks and willpower.
1: But I'm also not incredibly hungover, so it can't be a film festival.
0: Oh, oh yeah, you're right. Darn. All right. Sorry, audience. I thought I thought I was going to give you something special today. Um, but yes, we're here to talk. We're talk, here to talk about horror films horror horror films, particularly horror films. And, as always, we've got a kick-ass guest who's who's brought us a movie that means a lot to them. Donato, I know the two of you go way back, so, man, hit us with that introduction.
1: Yeah, I've just been a Twitter mutual for a long time with this person. Uh, Have met them briefly in our travels over the fantastic fests and other festivals over the years. Unfortunately, not as much as I would like to because everyone knows that festival life and everyone knows, uh, as Monogal has mentioned before, it's hard. It's tiring. We're all caught with our work and we're all kind of just like going along with it, but... The times I did get to meet Stephanie Crawford, I was very pleased with what we were able to get into. And you know, Stephanie is a freelance writer, podcaster. We know her from the screencast. Also, we had a very, uh, I'm not gonna say short stint. We had we had a good stint over at Dread Central crossing over our articles of drinking with the dead and uh, exhuming tales from the crypt. So with all that introduction, uh, Stephanie, thank you for taking some time out and coming on our little podcast.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. And yes, it was lovely seeing you at the film festivals, even though most of the time you're just like a blur of color, racing back and forth with a laptop in front of you. So
1: very impressive
2: work ethic. Yeah. Beer
1: in the other hand. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to figure it all out as it goes.
0: Well, it's, it's nice to have you as a guest because, you know, your your work on the screencast, I, I don't know. We, sometimes we talk to people that, that do tons of podcasting and I always want to start by saying, like, is it weird to be a guest on a horror podcast? Is it weird to be the person that everybody's looking to? And like, oh, tell us about you as opposed to you saying, tell me about
2: you. Um, I do enough of it that it's not weird in a novel way, but You know, most of my life, like, my voice was made fun of, and I've just been very self-conscious. So just uh, anyone ever being interested in anything, I have to say, is still a little surprising to me.
0: I don't agree with people that made fun of your voice, but I do agree that you are somebody that we should be asking multiple things about horror with. Um, So we're going to, you know, for, for those audience members who aren't familiar with your story, who haven't listened to the screencast, you know, first of all, shame on you. It's a, it's a small community as horror heads, You should know that already. But uh, Stephanie, I kind of want to start with your origin story. Uh, what were the first couple of films or the first few experiences that were formative to you as a horror fan? Uh,
2: for me, it started with books. Uh, both my parents are big readers. My mom's a librarian and, uh, we were not allowed to have scary movies, uh, violent movies, sexual movies, anything in the house. But when it came to books, there were no rules. So I started out like a lot of kids with goosebumps, um, went on to Fear Street, Christopher Pike, uh, some of those smaller series, not a lot of people know about like Nightmare Hall. Uh, if, it, if it had a spooky cover, I was gonna read it. And I uh, I think my dad uh, recommended Edgar Allan Poe to me. I think he was hoping I would get a little more literary. And I loved him. I decided to do a book report. And when I was looking things up at the library, I was like, oh, they made movies, Edgar Allan Poe movies. So I convinced my mom to let me see The Pit and the Pendulum, Roger Corman's. And that was it for me. I loved it. And I think I saw Edward Scissorhands that year too. So I became a big Vincent Price director. Uh, devotee and after that um, my life became how can I sneak in as many horror movies into my life as I possibly can and the biggest gateway for that was Cinemax we got Cinemax so it was a lot of nights of me turning the tv on something soft core being on late at night be like come on turning back to cartoons or MTV then switching back and so a lot of my first horror movies um or Pinocchio's Revenge, uh, Friday the 13th Part 3, Leprechaun 3, a lot of threes. They seemed to show a lot of threes back then. Um, But uh, finally, my parents uh, realized it was hopeless. Uh, So I think the first movies I was allowed to rent by myself, uh, I started on Psycho. And I watched the entire Psycho series. And yeah, that's been it.
1: (laughs) I like the idea that horror literature has been a lot of people's as we start getting these horror origins and guest by guest hearing their stories. I believe we were just talking Uh, to Trace. Donato,
0: Donato, no, please use the right term. It's origins.
1: Origins, sorry. As we get into everyone's origins, trademarked, certified forgotten podcast. No one else can take that word. Mm -hmm. As we get into them, Mm -hmm. I believe we're just talking to Trace. I believe we were talking to some other guests previously too. And novels seem to be how everyone got in. Like horror literature seems to be that in. And it's just as Stephanie said, parents have that idea of like, you can't watch horror. This is gross and disgusting. Here, go read a book. And it's like, do you know what my imagination can do? It's like,
2: <laughs> it's a powder keg. Now I remember in the fifth grade, uh, we had uh, in our elementary school, uh, a book sale. And there were a bunch of VC Andrews books. She's the one who wrote Flowers in the Attic and uh, Andrew Niedermeyer writes that now, who did Pin. So it's horror, and it's very sexualized horror a lot of the time. And we actually started a club in the fifth grade where we'd like hide and switch V.C. Andrew books and tell us where all, each other where all the dirty and scary parts were.
1: But God forbid you see Leprechaun in space.
2: Exactly. <laughs>
1: And it's funny to me
0: too, um, Stephanie, because when you mentioned like watching the Cinemax experience and a lot of folk, you know, a lot of people got their start as horror fans too, because they were seeing what was available on cable. You know, we've romanticized the story of like, oh, we saw this stuff in our parents, but... But if you really drill down to it, it's kind of funny to think that like so many people's fandom began with like some overtaxed media buyer for like HBO or Cinemax that was just like (laughs) dumping money into the cheapest properties that he could find. It was like, fuck it. I have 24 hours a day that I need to fill. And I like I need a movie for everything. And yet out of that came an entire generation of horror fans.
2: Yeah, very little curation. But I don't know. I like to think maybe it encouraged us to be a little bit open minded about both budgets and sequels.
1: And I think that's you know, as someone's entry point. It dictates how you become a horror fan. I mean, you know, you're saying you started with Corman too, uh, and you're starting with films of the nature of Leprechaun threes and all these uh, sequels that make it a little campier. Did that direct your horror watching towards campier, maybe horror comedies? Did that did that have like instill any foundation in that realm of horror?
2: Absolutely, and I I. Yeah, horror comedies I could sneak in once in a while. A big day for me was uh, showing my mom Saturday the 14th. And she's like, oh, yeah, this it's, it looks like a cartoon. That's okay. I'm like, I'm technically watching a Friday the 13th movie. But yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, just a couple years down the line, uh, I discovered Monster Vision. Uh, and, you know, so that that was a big thing, too. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy about that because... I take horror seriously, and I don't only like the goofy stuff, but I've always viewed the genre with kind of a sense of humor, and that's made it really fun. And uh, I think you miss out a lot if you uh, don't really address how uh, funny it can be in a way. So yeah, uh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, let me ask kind of about, you know, you said moving forward a few years, as you kind of broke free from the shackles of your parents and they were like, it's a lost cause, watch whatever you want, man. If it's not going to screw you up, it's too late for us. How did you, you know, high school, college era, how did you find ways of incorporating horror into what you were doing academically into social circles? And, you know, how did that, I'm always interested how people kind of the, the, Innocence of like, I just really like this thing, and I'm obsessed with it. When they're younger, to like, oh, this is an industry that I can kind of play a part in. So, what was it like bridging those worlds for you as you were going, you know, growing up and, and getting your education and thinking about the world?
2: I guess it's a little chaotic. I I started going to more adult horror literature, and then I got into uh computer games into them a lot. Undying, the Clive Barker one. That was really big for me and the Silent Hills and everything. Um I started getting sick towards the end of high school. I started missing school a lot to the point I had to drop out. Um and I was diagnosed with lupus, but right at the start it was really bad. It was basically debilitating. So I started um well I was already a devoted Fangoria reader, but I, I got really dedicated into buying back issues from eBay and almost memorizing them. I, I would just pore over those. And I started, uh, I got into DVD collecting uh, big time. <laughs> and I would just listen to the commentaries over and over again, the documentaries. And um, in my head, I was just like, oh, I could get in the special effects makeup. I can do this. I could do that. So I never... At the time, things were so unpredictable for me. It was hard to make clear goals, but I just kind of amassed information <laughs> and just stored it. I'm like, maybe one day, maybe one day this will come in handy. And I guess eventually it kind of did. Um, but yeah, it for and I know it's that way for a lot of people. It was a life raft. It really was for me. And um, at a time, I felt very disconnected from people. I, I just had so much fun losing myself into that world. So it, it was actually, uh, uh, I don't know, almost, uh, I don't want to say a drug, but you know, it was just something I could depend on in a really weird time in my life.
0: And when you, I mean, obviously there was a period there, I'm sure, where you, you kind of started to dabble with, with writing creatively, maybe on your own or, you know, starting a website what when did you start to say okay i have all this these experiences i have all of this knowledge that i've amassed from these films maybe i should start you know committing it to to paper metaphorical or otherwise and you know, maybe i should start talking about the films that i love and maybe there's an audience for what i have to say how did you kind of break into that world
2: very accidentally uh, i've always wanted to be a writer i've written since i was a kid but it was always fiction i was interested in and um Not that long ago, just a handful of years ago, I discovered the horror community on Twitter. I'm like, I probably should have assumed there is a huge community here, but it never occurred to me. So I was super late to meeting everyone, unfortunately. But immediately people were were welcoming and um, it it was really, um, with F this movie, just like, hey, if you ever want to write about a movie for us, uh, you know, go for it. And I'm like, why would... Me write about a movie? Uh, Why not? That sounds great. That actually sounds like my two big passions, me together. I'm not an intelligent person. These things don't automatically occur to me. (laughs) Like I kind of have to trip into something. Uh, But then there's no stopping me. It it, it really is like a a great marriage of my passions. So I guess just people being kind and actually saying, hey, maybe mm -hmm. a couple people might be interested in this.
1: Well, you know, to, to say you're not intelligent, it would be the a tremendous detriment, number one, because if people are coming to you saying, hey, right for our site, we really want your insight here. I mean, that's just a testament to what you do online, to what you do in the horror community and what you put into, you know, even every just tweet to make things rise above what the normal tweet would be of, hey, I like this movie. All right, that's cool. But all of a sudden, like you're, you know, you go in depth, you do all these things and I I think that very much is an intelligence. I don't think that's something to be ignored.
2: Oh, well, thank you. Um I'm just uh I'm very enthusiastic. Um, some some people are like, oh, are you a horror expert? Like not actually thinking that, but trying to see if that's how I think of myself. Absolutely not. I've <laughs> never called myself that unless I'm making fun of myself. Uh, no, I'm just an enthusiast. So every opportunity I get, every time I can be on something like this, it just, it's just—it's such a big gift, and it, it doesn't get old. And it, I just love talking to people about these movies because, you know, I was alone loving them for a long time, like very, very alone. So getting the chance to share it with people—that's—that's that's incredible.
0: Well, let me ask as a question to that too. You know, since you kind of took your independent love of these films and and started plugging it into a community has that shaped in any way your relationship to the movies that you spent so much time enjoying and consuming by yourself. Do you find that now that there is more of a communal aspect to, to how you approach these films, does that change how you think about them? Does that change how you enjoy them? Does it enhance it? Does it make it worse?
2: Yeah, I don't have the clearest answer to that because if I'm getting sent a screener, I am in a different headspace when I sit down and watch that one and besides like mm-hmm. buying a Blu-ray that just looks interesting or, or going to the dark recesses of Amazon Prime streaming. Um, so there's a little bit of difference there. But yeah, because yeah, I I there are times I just turn my brain off, but um, I have tried to be more thoughtful, more open to picking up connections between films um, I, I've always thought a lot about movies as I watch them and afterwards but yeah I mean I, I won't lie there's part of me so it's like oh hmm, how, how could I translate this to the written word like this this um, pattern I'm seeing or this feeling I'm experiencing so um, with me writing is such messy chaos in my head so unfortunately mm-hmm. I don't have like a really nice answer for you um, it, and it probably affects it in a lot of ways I don't even realize um, I I try to always be fair though I'm a Libra I try
0: <laughs> no I, I hear you and, and I guess kind of the the question there that's that's interesting to me too um, is just the idea of like these movies that you thought of of a certain way when you went out into the world and saw there were entire communities built around certain titles you know there are fandoms because for me, a lot of the films that I kind of discovered, I was like, I, I get this film, right? Like, this is a movie that I get. And I went out there, you know, like something like Ravenous, which I discovered in high school. And I was like, Ravenous is amazing. It's a movie just for me. And I got online and like everybody's like, fuck Ravenous. And so it, it you know, there was a, it's interesting to see how that changes how I feel about a movie, knowing that what I thought was just this totally off the beaten path, you know, undiscovered thing. Yeah, there is a little bit of that, but there are these communities that I can connect with and share stories with and talk to about it. And then suddenly it, it simultaneously like makes it better and worse because like this thing that I thought was just for me for so long is now something I get to share with other people. So I have less of a sense of individual ownership over it, but I enjoy that collective ownership over the title, kind of thinking about it in terms of that sort of relationship and and how it's been to take some of your favorite films and maybe connect a community to them
2: yeah for me i i'm an only child who always wants siblings i moved around a lot when i was a kid so i i constantly had to make new friends i have always been desperate to connect to people <laughs> with the things i love um i i've never felt ownership over anything uh, there are films that are really personal to me in ways i don't always feel comfortable talking about um but yeah, I guess I just tell myself, I didn't make this movie. <laughs> who am I to yeah. say anything about it? I'm not cool just because I like it. Um, I And I absolutely do understand uh, people who do feel that way uh, to a degree, but um, I don't know. It's it's a piece of art a lot of people worked on, and I think if you can like log on and see people from all around the world who not only enjoy the same thing, but maybe from a... Con- a completely different angle than you do, that that's addictive. And I just, uh, I, I don't know, to me, that's, that's a kind of magic. So uh, I, I've always been thrilled with it.
0: It's the healthiest perspective on fandom I've ever heard.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I was gonna say, really? like, like, no joke. <laughs> yeah, and I was gonna say, coming from a uh, only child background as well, it, it, it's, I, I never thought about that way myself. I never thought about the idea of how I didn't, have anyone for a long time to talk about these things with and you know how much i would watch a horror movie and i'm talking like high school college even we're not even getting into like early donato because that's again that wasn't me so high school college there was an opportunity there if i had even parents that were into that kind of content and you know if my dad walked down and saw me watching dead sushi his reaction wouldn't be what the fuck are you doing It would be more the sense of oh this looks interesting what the hell is going on but like i know i had the what the fuck are you doing i had that side of things of i was never going to connect over horror and i I didn't have siblings to do it with so it actually is interesting the way you put that because the fandom for me did become more of just finding other like-minded people and sitting down and talking about it it was the idea that i never actually had that so all of a sudden that did open a world to say oh i can write about horror movies, I can go on horror podcasts, I could do all these things, not only to promote the film, not only just to be involved, but I just never had that opportunity for so long. So that might actually fuel a lot more of my excitement and a lot more of my ambition than I ever really gave credit for.
2: I feel like we're working a lot of things out today, guys, but this is (laughs) I'm proud of us.
0: Uh, well, I was I was young and arrogant, and and I lost a lot of that. So I don't feel like I have ownership over anything anymore. And it's I'm healthier for it. Um, but before we talk about the movie, last question I want to have is, Stephanie, the Screamcast has been around since 2005, right? Celebrating its sixth anniversary this year. Does that sound right?
2: Yes, that sounds right.
0: Awesome. Wait, so, t- 2005 planned, or 2015? Or
1: 2015. 15. Sorry, 2015.
0: I had that wrong in my head. But by like, but by podcast standards, that's ancient, right? That's like, that's Royal 2015 is pre, like it's pre everything. So how did you, how did you get involved with that and kind of what has that journey since that's come to mean so much for so many people, you know, what has that journey been like as one of the you know founding fathers of the horror podcast scene? And you'll have to take the compliment because that's what it is.
2: Okay. Well, it's actually not my compliment. Cause I, I came in later, um, uh, Shonda Rager started it, and a lot of people don't know that Brian Sauer was a co-host uh, at the start, who does pure cinema and just the discs. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's just had a great rotating thing. Brad Henderson has been on there for quite a while. Um, uh, uh, I joined in when uh, BJ Calangelo was on there, and they uh, I did a, I think it was 2017. I guested on an Argento episode and afterwards they asked me if I wanted to be a co-host so I am writing their coattails. I did not earn <laughs> the reputation at all. Uh, everyone else lay- did all the hard work and they laid the groundwork but uh, I'm really uh, proud to have a small part in it.
1: Well I mean it's also a testament though that you've been on a podcast this long with Brad Henderson and I've known Brad Henderson long enough to know that. Congratulations for sticking around that long. <laughs> Oh, Brad,
2: if you, you're
0: listening, sorry, buddy.
2: Oh, I, I, I can show you our group chat, okay? And no, Matt <laughs> Donato's right about this.
1: <laughs> I, lo- I love Henderson <laughs> so much.
2: No, but you know what's great? I finally have brothers now, and they do drive me crazy, mm-hmm. and it makes me so happy. <laughs> I finally have that dynamic.
0: And there's one thing, I'm going to continue to give you credit, um, even though you joined in in 2017, because it's one thing to start a podcast, it's really hard to keep it going. Like, we have seen so many good podcasts, so many good podcasts come and go and die. And whoever is involved and is able to keep it, 2017 to 2020, four years of this for you. It's so cool that there are people out there that are continuing to make these things sustain and work because it feels like, you know, the statistic of like, what is it? hundreds of podcasts start every day, thousands of podcasts are started every new year, something like that. And, you know, it's, it's good to see that there are quality podcasts that can just continue and continue to be good and, and continue to deliver the kind of content their audience likes. That's no small thing in and of itself.
2: No. Uh, and thank you. We, we actually called it quits last year and uh, we did some commentaries cause we still wanted to work together. But then one day uh, in the the chat we have, Brad just like, Hey, you guys want to bring Screamcast back? And we're like, yeah. And we're back. So that that's, kind of, it was that casual. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. That's it's cool that we can jump, b- jump back into it. I don't know how, how often that happens that we just restarted it that easily. Uh, but no, I, I admire people uh, who can keep things going and I'm feeling it for this one with you guys. I'm feeling it.
1: This is, we're trying, we're doing our best. We're trying, we're we're breaking the 30 mark. We're in what, 37, 38 territory, 39 possibly. So, I mean, it's, listen, this is longer than I even thought it would go. And that's not, it's not a diss on anything here. It's just It's. It's just the nature of podcasts. No, it's exactly what Monagle said. It's, we all have these great ideas. We all have these, oh, I can start a podcast. This is easy. How many times mm-hmm. have a group of friends been in a bar drunk being like, you know, it'd be awesome if we just started a podcast. And like, yeah, that is kind of a stereotype. And in the same nature, I it takes work. It takes hard work. And when you find something that does stick, find something that works. I have no. Don't worry, Monagle. I have no thoughts of abandoning anytime soon. That's not to say that. It's just I. I'm impressed. Please enjoy on- our
0: final episode of Certified Forgotten. <laughs>
1: oh, hey, <no>. li- listen. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, if you that can like- get a year. If you can get a year, that's one thing. If you can get five, six years, that is just a tremendous thing. And again, I know how busy everyone on the screencast is, too, because I, I, you know, I play Call of Duty with Brad Henderson probably like five times a week, and I know the billion projects he alone has going on. And then everyone else in that group, you know, you included, obviously, everyone has so many things going on. And just what you said, a testament to it is Henderson being able to be like, yeah, let's bring this back on top of everything you all have to do. You're still coming back with it. and. You know, you're received immediately. You have filmmakers jumping on. Like, your first episode back, whatever. Didn't you have, like, Joe Lynch literally just like, yeah, like, like, let's do this.
2: Yeah. <laughs> D- wait, so he's so busy, but he's still playing that much Call of Duty. I wasn't,
1: wasn't going to say anything. I heard it, and I wasn't going <laughs> to say gonna it. Call of <laughs> Duty is so... You don't understand the dedication to <laughs> Call of Duty and his work in the sense that he will take a call for something he has going on and play Call of Duty with us. We'll still get a win somehow, and, like, that. that's just... You got to sometimes you just got to vent. Sometimes you just got to go never dance, kill some people and your day turns around.
0: I think it, it you know, a year after after COVID, nobody can judge anybody anymore what they do on Zoom calls within reason. Within reason. We've heard some stories, but for the most part, if you can get the work, if you if you're on a phone call, Zoom call and you're going to play some Call of Duty, why not, man? Don't act like you haven't done that, Donato. 100%. Oh, oh
1: I yeah
2: do you guys mind if I move you and I can play some fallout while we talk about this? Like I know you guys (laughs) are so loose. This is great.
1: Just push the screen to the side.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We'll just, just put this, go on Twitch, live stream this, and then we'll, uh, we'll do the audio. It'll be a special live show. There you go. Well, we are here today to talk about a very, very special movie. Um, So when we come back, we're going to jump into Mike Mendez's The Convent, and we're going to hear why Stephanie immediately picked this one, like immediately picked this one for the podcast. So when we come back, it's convent time. Every week on the, or every time we record a podcast, we have a quick little bumper where our... People that are make up our patron network either ask us a question or give us a talking point. And we have a fun one, I think, today um, that you were gonna share. So
1: let's hear it. Sure thing. We have Mr. Ian to start us off, one of our fantastic Patreons. And Ian wants to know a very simple question. It's a two-parter. What horror movie and what non-horror movie are you each most looking forward to this year? So uh, I'm gonna start first, just because I have it off the top of my head. I'm gonna start with my horror movie, And I'm going to go with Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, because here's why. I think this is redemption Mm -hmm. for Michael Chaves. I did not love The Curse of La Llorona. I did not love what Chaves did there. I feel like it was a, uh, I feel like he was trying to imitate James Wan instead of kind of taking his own way with one of those films. So to have Chaves come back and do a Conjuring film and to see those first images where we get an opening possession getting right to the nitty-gritty of uh yeah there's some contortion there's some nastiness going on there i feel like this is chaves as a comeback let's say and whether you liked curse of the lie your Honor or not i mean by all means if you did like it all power to you but i for me at least this is a uh, chaves coming into his own and that's what it looks like at least so i i'm now the hype train has left the station for the next conjuring film
0: Plus, we just don't do enough like police procedural horror films, right? Like there are some, but every time that a horror movie kind of mashes up two things that don't get put together enough, that that's reason enough for excitement.
1: Which is funny because I'm rewatching all the Saw films right now currently.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, have fun with that. Monogal. All right, so that was your horror film. What's your most What's your most anticipated... Or do you want me to do my horror film first?
1: I, I could do my other one. I'll, I'll, I'll jump into it. I was going to let you go let's horror. Here, let's do both. Cool. All right, no, so... No, two Donatos. Two Donatos in a row. So my other most anticipated non-horror, I'm going to take The Suicide Squad because James Gunn needed to make a Suicide Squad movie. Uh, I feel like he has the best grapple on any kind of outcast storytelling any kind of anti-hero the people you count out and discredit James Gunn is going to do the best with them possible and that is not to say David Ayer failed monumentally I think there were lots of issues with the first Suicide Squad movie I feel like I give it more credit than a lot of people do it's still not a good movie do not get me wrong but I want to see james gunn's suicide squad so very badly because he has already taken all of the weirdest the quote-unquote weirdest villains you can find the polka dot man you have weasel james gunn is doing everything he can to assemble a team of wackadoos and everyone that he is going to take and just it's stratosphere like stratosphere level we're gonna love all these characters he's gonna do so right by these and I hope i'm not proven wrong but in that case uh you know i'll eat my words i, I don't think i will though i think James gun is going to absolutely knock us out of the park
0: yeah i'm excited for that one too all right my two really quickly are my most anticipated horror film 2021 is the same most anticipated horror film i had of 2020 which was the same most anticipated horror film i had of 2019 it's antlers it is a film that is never ever fucking going to come out but if it ever does And its I I know a few people actually saw it three years ago. Um, There's actually reviews that have been published. I saw a Rube Morgan review and other places. So it sort of exists in the cracks. But if it ever comes out, it's been the film i wanted to see for so long. Um, I'm here for Jesse Blemons all the time. So I'm hopeful that it's good. And my uh, my non-horror film that I'm really excited about, and it's a bit of a cheat because it comes out this weekend, is, um, what is it, Those Who Want Me Dead, the new Taylor Sheridan film. Um, Loved Wind River hell or high water sicario just starting to get into yellowstone a bit of a taylor sheridan freak and the fact that they apparently didn't give out any screeners and the fact that it is uh embargoed as of all the way through thursday night not super confidence building there but um my boy hasn't hasn't led me astray yet so i'm hoping this one will be
1: good i am pro taylor sheridan all the things you have named i have not gotten into yellowstone i have seen it advertised numerous times while i'm watching tv in the morning on the treadmill but i will get to eventually sheridan just does great i mean hell or high water alone i the first time i saw that i was just blown away by i think it was one of my favorite movies that year so i'm very into hearing your thoughts on this because i will not get to it this week i'm already buried in army of the dead and spiral and all those things so sheridan's gonna have to wait
0: yeah i'll let you know i got tickets for saturday night i'm very excited and then my thing uh this week this thursday thursday may 13th it's my mom's birthday so uh marilyn monigle if you are listening which i hope that you are um i want to say thank you for instilling in me a love of all things horror thank you for all the weird terrible horror movies that you've made us watch over the years um if you have an opportunity to celebrate my mom's birthday with me just go out and watch a john carpenter movie those have been her standbys for a very 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 long time go out and find some 1950s creature feature that she would have watched growing up you know this is kind of the way that she instilled a little bit of love for me in horror especially as i got a little bit older so we shout out the same month as mother's day we're going to shout out my mom um for being a patron for supporting the podcast and you know for giving birth to me and allowing me to exist and you know, making sure that I had an education and uh, all those other boring things too. But mostly, mostly for the, what, $10 that she gives us every month for this podcast. That's the most important
1: thing right now. Hey, it's it's more than my mom. And I hope my mom hears that someday. So (laughs) I will (laughs) gladly watch Ghosts of Mars in your mom's honor on Thursday. I I will gladly do that.
0: All right. That one goes out to you, mom. And with that, we're going right back to the show. Okay, so today's episode, as you saw by the title, is on the 2000 film, uh, Mike Mendez's The Convent. It is a horror comedy about a group of college students who go to tag the bell tower of an old church and find out that there is a secret history of demons that requires them to go full evil dead and kill each other, you know? There is a, a couple of guest stars that horror fans will know and love, such as Bill Moseley and Adrian Barbeau. It's... Um, it's 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 a very it's very unlike the other kind of films that were coming out in 2000. Uh, I took some notes here in terms of the highest grossing films, the highest grossing horror films in 2000. And it kind of came out. It hit Sundance Film Festival in 2000 in a year where Scream 3, Hollow Man, Final Destination, Blair Witch 2 and Dracula 2000 were the highest grossing horror films of the year. And instead, what horror fans who saw this at Sundance got was something that is very much so a throwback, very much so an 80s style horror film. It has a lot of like Italian horror in its blood. It has a lot of Sam Raimi and Sam Raimi imitators in its blood. And it's just something that strives to be funny and schlocky and good in equal amounts. So as we always do when we start talking about the films, uh, Steph, we're going to start with you and why this was the one you picked for Certified Forgotten.
2: Okay. Uh, So travel back to high school. Uh, Oh, and this is going to set it great for the aughts. I was in Tower Records. And uh, so I I was still in my horror 101 stage of deep, you know, I was gaining ground quickly, but it was early on. So a lot of times I would just go into a store and wander around and pick up things that looked interesting. And I saw the convent. And I knew nothing about it. I just looked on the back. It looked fun. It looked interesting. So I paid $20 for it at Tower Records. I brought it home. And I loved it. Uh, I didn't mention it earlier, but uh, The Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 were my absolute favorites when I got into horror. I just, I love the sense of humor. I love slapstick and horror. And this channeling that little bit was a big deal. Uh, Yeah, 2000 was crazy. Uh, The first Final Destination, uh, American Psycho. And then um, we also had uh, yeah Ginger Snaps. Mm -hmm. And uh, another movie came out this year that I I always match together in my head because I randomly bought their (laughs) DVDs at Tower Records. But um, are you guys familiar with The Dead Hate the Living?
0: I am not myself. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it.
2: Okay, so that um, it was uh, released by Full Moon and um, it's very, it's from Dave Parker. It's very much a tribute to Italian zombie movies, especially Fulci. And um, it's just, there's no budget to it, but it has amazing zombies. The lead guy looks exactly like rob zombie but it's like keanu reeves playing rob zombie he's so beautiful that scene as a teenager really worked for me um so yeah it, i this and those were the two movies they kind of got me interested in uh, more independent horror films. so it was actually a big gateway movie for me
0: yeah in this film this is the sort of film that I think even 10 minutes into it, the thought that popped in my head is that this movie either came out 25 years too late or 10 years too early because it is definitely the mid, like the 2010s, I think, are when we really tapped into a lot of filmmakers that were looking to capture the joy and enthusiasm and fun of the VHS nasties that they grew up on. And so this is a film that feels like it sort of got there first, that it has the ideas that, that are kind of commonplace now, where you cast genre icons in small roles, give them like good cameos in the film. It draws a lot on that kind of like practical, bloody-gory special effects of, like you said, a Fulci. It, you know, it it replays or plays with a lot of the concepts that came from VHS horror that that the filmmakers loved and grew up with. But this this just got there first, right? This got this played in that particular sandbox before a lot of other people were doing it and i think it makes it a really unique experience because you're seeing something that's sort of caught between the movies that it is homaging and the films that would come later that would like take this and dial it up to 11 and really like basically try and recreate those beats so it's a it's a fascinating little thing and it's it's strange to think i had to remind myself multiple times that this is a 21st century movie because there were You know, like I, it was just like oscillating as I was watching. I was like, Oh, this is no, no, that's right. This is 2000. So this, uh, Nope, this is the year 2000. It makes it uh, for a fun viewing experience.
2: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I think it part of why it's so effective is you can absolutely see all of the influences, uh, night of the demons, demons, evil dead, early Peter Jackson, when he was doing horror. Um, but it, it, you know, it makes it its own. It's not just a machine referencing things. Um Yeah, it the I I think the energy on this sells most of it. And i I it's okay, so a lot of people will call things dated as an insult. And I hate that because I love dated things. Cause I feel like it's the only functional time machine we actually have where you can get see what things are like back then and uh to me this just has like all the great trends of like that super fast filming style for the bad guys and all the neon and um so on one hand it, it's this really great like yes this was the year 2000 but on the other hand you're right like it it was one of I don't know if it set a template but it was definitely one of the early influencers where it's like you know you can kind of weave all this stuff together, uh, all this stuff you're passionate Mm. about and just make it your own and go from there.
1: Well, I think it's interesting to bring up the the dated conversation, especially, and I'm kind of with you. I, I like when something is a throwback and very much what Mendes is going for, as you have both said already is entirely a throwback when you're, you're watching a 2000s movie that, is playing, as you've both said, like an 80s Midnighter, and is doing so with the same quality that you might find on a VHS tape. So immediately, you're watching an early aughts horror film, but you're transported back to the 80s in visual style and aesthetic. Also, to me, the opening is entirely Tarantino. You're going back to the early 90s, where it has this Tarantino vibe of nunsploitation, how he might adapt a horror nun religious kind of just blow out because so I was thinking
2: spaghetti Western when the really violent ones mm-hmm. just drop you right into the action and you pick it up from there. But yeah, Tarantino, obviously enjoys a spaghetti Western. here. Exactly <laughs> that's right. That's so he's, sure. he's
1: playing right into it. And spaghetti is a great little uh, ad there because the blood is just like sauce splattering everywhere. And, but also it's doing all these things while still remaining in the two thousands in production quality, we'll say clothing all the cars you're still in the 2000s and you're especially there because it's this industrial rock aesthetic in its own right when you're talking about the soundtrack you're talking about the rhythm behind everything it's anything you might find in like a goth club at the time and almost to this like blade extent where you're it it just feels like industrial aughts metal horror in your face but it looks like 80s midnighters schlock cheese and it also still to me carries that like Tarantino sensibility about itself. And you don't at any moment you're looking at something you don't understand fully. <laughs> like at least for me, you're like, how did this work come together? And a fun little tidbit is the only review is from Eric D. Snyder on Rotten Tomatoes. He was at Sundance to see it. Eric has been doing this for long enough to be doing that, and he's been doing it very well in like representing horror. And his little tidbit that he sent me was kind of like. He saw this on VHS. So if we want to talk about dated, he saw the uh, the convent as a Sundance screener VHS tape because that's how that's how it came to him. So if we're talking about like a movie that came out, whether it was too late or too early, it was caught in this in between of two thousands VHS abilities. I, I don't even know. <laughs> that's pretty fitting. That's pretty fitting. It seems like.
2: Yeah, and that's uh, they held on to it for a while, so it actually came out in 2002, and then uh, you had, like, Cabin Fever going and things like that, so I I don't know, does it work better as a 2002 movie than a 2000 movie? Then again, Psycho Beach Party also came out in 2000, and that's just an all-timer with low-budget horror comedy, so...
1: Well, and that's what Mendez has been doing this his entire career, too. If we want to talk about independent horror and people who have made a name for themselves doing indie horror, that's Mendez. He's been in these circles for such a long time. And we're talking about I effing love Big Ass Spider. I think it is one of the greatest opening sequences I've ever seen in my life. Um, It is entirely that sci-fi cheesy vibe. But that's what Mendez has been doing when you watch something like The Convent. You know, Big Ass Spider was 2013. The Convent's 2000. The dude has not stopped making the movies he's wanted to make this entire time. And it becomes abundantly apparent apparent when you watch, again, nunsploitation, demons, uh, vampire kind of little throw-ins when you're talking about the goth lookalikes. Everything here is playing on a genre convention. Everything here is playing on different subgenres, and he just throws them all together. And I think it plays better as a 2002 movie. I don't know if that sounds weird. I think 2000 is still "quote unquote" too early to be appreciated for a film of this kitchen sinkiness. Hmm. 2002 feels more like, all right, we've really gotten into autar. We're really just gonna try some things. I, I think that's the way to put it. We're gonna try a bunch of things here and when you put it in context with the with the 2002 movies that start to come out i think it does play a little better there
0: yeah and i you know mendez in a lot of interviews talks about the idea of you know you either make a 100 million dollar movie or you make a movie that costs less than a million and that's just there there is no middle class incentive anymore which you talk to anybody in the industry or out of the industry it's that's just kind of the way that it is but there is there is an element of the convent that i think you know, I don't. This is just a gut feeling. I don't have anything to base this on. But what it feels like is it feels a bit like a throwback to a time where you made a movie for less than a million dollars and you still tried to make something that felt better. And I think a lot of filmmakers now, you know, this is generally speaking, and I, you know, don't want to disparage anybody who's doing great work at like a hundred thousand dollars a pop. But I think a lot of filmmakers now that kind of work in that lower budget range, they've realized that there isn't a lot of upside for some of their work to like try and, and really make it look like it's that $100 million. There is an audience, there is an audience for films that are cheap and are, and are kind of okay being cheap. And I don't mean cheap in the sense that they're not trying or that they're not talented, just like that they're inexpensive and that you can tell that they're inexpensive. I feel like the thing that's kind of happened over the last 10 years is the appetite for that. You can think of like the earlier asylum films or some of the direct to sci-fi stuff that happened. That kind of became a, a niche in and of itself. And what we lost a little bit is people like Mendez that were still making movies on those budgets, but like really trying to make it compete with some of the, the higher budget stuff. You know, they weren't content to make a movie that was a $500,000 movie or however much this cost. You know, they were trying to make a $20 million movie on a $500,000 budget. And I think that mindset is a little, it feels a little different for a lot of f- filmmakers that are operating kind of on, on the periphery of the industry and, and making those low budget films.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great insight. Um, because yeah B movies at at a time they really were the middle class of filmmaking you know you might uh, even though you didn't have the money you definitely had the pretensions of uh, mm-hmm. in the best way possible of aiming higher than that I think around this time even Julie Strain mentioned that B movies were completely dead because she was working with Wynorski like three day shooting like $5,000 budget and just kind of saying like we really shouldn't have to be forced to do this just because we can't bankroll kind of an A picture. So, yeah, um, the digital and streaming has helped out with that a little bit, but it it definitely is a time uh, where you could see these things shot on film, kind of um, straddling that. Yeah, and I, yeah, that that adds I think a lot to its charm too.
1: Yeah. And I think the charm here for a lot of people is going to be the comedy and the grossness. You're you're aiming at Midnighters here. You're aiming at the horror hounds who just want to see splatter effects. And there are copious amounts of them here. Um, I I guess my question, just to open it up to both of you, is I fell for the comedy more times than I didn't. I'm not going to say every single scene worked for me when you're going for a tremendous comedic effect and beating me over the head with a gag. In that sense, I still found myself staying in this longer than I think some other people will. But, you know, for both of you, I mean, how how does the comedy come across? Because, again, to me, we're stuck in the Midnighter world of pure horror comedy. It's not trying to scare you. The demons look like uh, I I was watching it with a friend who said very Buffy-esque. And they do. They look extremely Mm Buffy-esque. We're going here for that kind of template. And again, Buffy-esque with neon eyes, green neon eyes, emerald colored, and also like blue veiny neon pops. So that, again, brings in this other black light aesthetic. Does all that work for you in that sense? Because we're just going so far into the comedy realm. Is that something that you're drawn to or was that a hindrance at any point?
2: Well, this is so tied to nostalgia to me. So when the movie really looks like a great Spencer's gifts from the early two thousands, I'm like, yes, take me back. Uh, no, it, I can absolutely uh, see. Yeah, it's yeah, it's so tied to nostalgia for me. Um, so I I still think it's a blast, but I'm I'm so, you know, coming from a very specific place. I I grew up a little bit with this movie, just a little bit. Um, And then there are, are, you know, the stunt casting with Coolio uh, with Bill Mosley. like that's that kind of stuff works with me. And also, is this the first like maybe YouTube social media using uh, horror movies? Because, okay, we have Liam Kyle Sullivan in this, who everyone knows is Kelly from the early YouTube years. Give me those shoes. Okay, you know that song. You both know that song. I know you
0: we do. We very much do.
2: And then, though, uh Megan Perry, who is the goth girl, she played Heather the vampire in those, and she got her own spinoff. And she was a vampire on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, too, by the way. So just all this stuff just delights me so much. And just seeing Adrian Barbeau. Basically, get to be Snake Pliskin. Finally, it's just, um, yeah, I'm like a kid in a candy store with this. I, I, this is the one I can be objective what? about. There are parts that are clunky, though.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, and we're even getting to tie Barbo's character to other, maybe later horror characters. That's early iterations of uh, Laurie Strode that we have now seen in the newer Halloween films. And you know, when you when you mm-hmm. look at Barbo's character and the. At, at the point, we have a character running to the house, seeking the help of the original survivor and veteran, screaming, please help us. And you get to see these glimpses of Bargo's character's house. There are surveillance ca- cameras. Like, she's obviously been, like, preparing for this. She's obviously been being a survivalist and being like, I have to basically handle this someday. And that's where we well, got no, to. no, actually...
0: She has the line that this happens every five years, that like every five years, teenagers show up on her door (laughs) and she has to go kill more zombies and then like five years later. So this is like an definitely an ongoing kind of thing in the vein of now there's two horror movies where Laurie Strode has to go kill Michael Myers multiple times.
1: Exactly. So like you're getting the template for so many things. And I will say this in one way because it's very much Night of the Demons. I'm glad you brought that up previously, Steph. I also found some very very similar some well very deep similarities between the night of the demons remake in this film in the sense that i know the indie horror circles are very close in times and i'm sure there have been influences uh, throughout the years as indie horror directors come up with one another i kind of really draw a lot of comparisons to the defacing in both films and i draw some comparisons to uh demons or sorry demonification during sex in these two films, so I'd be curious to hear if there were any uh, influences lifted uh, from the director of the United of the Demons remake, who I'm blank on the name right now, I just don't want to mess it up if I get it wrong, but between that director's influences and maybe that including the convent, because I see, I see a lot of comparisons here, I see a lot of draws, the energy, everything, and uh, I would love that.
0: Well, I can I can answer your question. Donato, know about comedy. I mean, this is the frequent listeners of the show know that this is not a monogal movie. Um, by by any by any means, uh, horror comedy and stuff. This is not a this is not a knock on the film. It's just I am famously curmudgeonly when it comes to horror comedies because my thing is always that you get about twenty good minutes and then the bit runs out and you're left with another hour of like oh. Um, that said, that said, there's there's that this kept my interest because there were some weird fucking choices, like some really fucking weird choices throughout that made it a lot of fun for me to kind of go, okay, like the two characters of Saul and Dickie boy, who are the Satanists who, you know, Saul who it works at Dairy Queen, but is a secret Satanist who is trying to raise the demon. Like the introduction of those characters and kind of the, uh, the humor, the running humor that they added is just those aren't characters you see now, like a filmmaker who is homaging seventies and eighties movies would lose sight of the weird characters. Like, you know, I'm sorry to say this again, demon Win, but like the magic sequence, if you made a, if you made a film, uh, if you remade demon Win now and threw back to as much as stuff, like they would definitely scrub the magician stuff because they're just like, all right, that's a little too weird. That's so and this sad. is, this <laughs> is the kind of film where it, like, it remembers that the things that really stand out are those, the pieces that don't fit. Like the stuff that really sticks in our minds about those '70s and '80s horror videos that we loved is like that those weird characters or those weird decisions. Where we're like, what the fuck? And so this kept those in that movie through a few of the characters, and that was kind of the, for me that kept the energy level high. It kept the film going through to the end. Is every now and then they drop Dickie Boy back in, who like has a you know has an idea of how they're going to not be sacrificed as versions, and you're like, oh, oh okay, these are weird choices, but I'm not I'm not hating it uh yeah,
1: not to, it, not to correct knows... you monogle but uh it's dairy cream dairy, not, uh, cream. dairy, dairy cream we're not getting sued
2: over here <laughs> for legal so, reasons
1: also they shop at greater joe's not trader joe's
0: <laughs> oh i i i clocked that bag and i just i must have misread it i thought it said trader joe's <laughs>
1: anyway sorry, sorry steph you have an actual point to make please continue <laughs>
2: No, I forgot. Okay, no. Yeah, the film knows exactly how absurd it is. You know, they have the little subplot, the guy who really wants to lose his virginity. Two weirdos he he doesn't know are like, uh, we just we're gonna blindfold you and you're gonna have sex. He's like, All right, sounds good. The movie knows how ridiculous it is, but it still did it. And I love that. I really respect that.
0: The thing the thing that I wrote down that was my favorite running gag in the movie is that when when Brant does his introduction and he's like, Hey, it's the Brandster. And so for the rest of the film, Saul calls him the Branster, which was like, it's stuff like that. You're like, Mm -hmm. all right, this is the right amount of, of irreverent, but also kind of clever. It's when you get modern ideas and the throwbacks working in tandem that I'm like, okay, I, I, we're on the same vibe right now, Phil.
1: And if we want to talk about the 2000s, and if we want to talk about influences, I also see a little bit of We've already thrown out so many different kitchen sink elements here and, and all the hybrids mm. it's trying to do. I, there's very much extremely American Pie vibes that I'm getting in certain moments, uh, whether that be the, the version clearly trying to pretend like he's not a version and just thrusting, like imitating sex and being like, yeah, can't wait to sex. This is going to be great. And just <laughs> these moments that are so clearly trying to play on the teen sex comedy angle. That again, it just adds another element of, to not steal the same words you've been saying, weirdness to this whole film. It just becomes weird on levels where you have the gorification and the decapitations and the giallo-esque paint-red blood. This is not real blood. This is always meant to be something that is just colorful and insane and pops. But Mm -hmm. then you go over to the teen sex comedy angle. Then you go over to the stoner guy who is just out of his mind walking around as people are dying and you get the hallucinogenic elements of psychedelic horror. It is always trying something different scene by scene and whether or not the comedy lands, it is still pursuing the strangest route possible. And there is a bit of, you know, there's a bit that you can look at and go, I have to appreciate it just on that angle. (laughs)
2: Well, yeah, while he's tripping, uh, part of the crazy things he's seeing is someone doing a shadow puppet on the wall. So mm-hmm. I guess if you find that funny, you, you can kind of determine if you'll enjoy this movie. Oh, but another thing I love about the time period, it's goths versus preps. Remember when that was a thing? That's represented mm-hmm. here.
0: Yeah, in the last episode that we recorded, we were talking about Deep Burder, an uh, instant Donato favorite, and we definitely we 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 had several conversations about the idea that what makes homage work is that it doesn't exist only in connection to the thing that it's lampooning or parroting or or you know making fun of. the The thing about this film is that whether whether you love it or not it kind of has the same idea as deep murder where it's not entirely anchored to the past they are like the the actors that they select are interesting they make good choices with kind of broad characters but the film does the film is kind of setting its up its own story and it's not it doesn't exist just to remind us of 70s films and that is a point in its favor because it has a sense of what it's trying to do that is a bit more timeless than just like hey you know the the I always think of the same video of the guy that's making fun of uh, Ready Player One. It's just like, hey, remember remember Demons? Remember Evil Dead? Remember all these other films you watched? So many of the homage type movies are basically that. It's just a filmmaker sitting with you and being like, see how this is like Demons? See, this is like Evil Dead. You remember those movies, right? This film remembers that it has to tell its own kind of thing. And it, it through Barbeau in particular and through some of the characters and the way they react differently to environments than maybe we've seen before, it does that. It, it tells its own story.
2: Yeah, it, it feels like a really badass haunted house that you're being led through rather than just hmm. being told about.
0: I like, yeah, I like that. It does it does feel like that. It feels like if I went through that haunted house, I would be very happy to go back through.
1: That's my, uh, I, I always love pulling in the comparison. Just as Steph said, you know, if I'm writing a review and I can write the, the sentence, it feels like this should be a Halloween Horror Nights maze. That is like such a bonus on any film that I write that about because I do want to be in that scenario. I, if I'm watching a movie like Annabelle comes home and I walk away going, yeah, that just, it's primed for a universal maze. Like, of course, like that is only a testament to the fact that Annabelle comes home does a great amount with creatures and it just leads you through the haunted house and it knows what it's there to do. And I very much think the convent in its own way is exactly that because it just wants to put these characters into a convent that is rife with possession And how you get possessed, whether that be through sex or any other means, it's going to happen. We're going to get these characters in nun outfits. We're going to make them all look dead and buffy-ish. And we're going to have a blast. And that's exactly what they do. And it is down to the fact that you have Coolio berating teens for smoking marijuana. Or you have the great goth moment of the goth is just... You know, confident, independent, doing all these things, and you get the prep yelling from the wearing side, wearing a black
2: tutu and saving yourself right. from Marilyn Manson. It,
1: yeah, that uh, that line. I was Did like, right. well. yeah, that, yes <laughs> it, that 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 was dated in a way that we don't love. But you get the great line of the prep cheerleader because, of course, the cheerleader is still dressed like a cheerleader, screaming the line like "Get in, Lesbo!" and all the, the goth is like, "Oh, Lesbo, that's me." And just the, just the little hint of that line and the confidence in her delivery and just like the "fuck you" attitude. It does those things right. The attitude, the energy, as we've said over and over again, it's right there. If this film had less, less enthusiasm where I don't mean this to be a negative, but it very much feels at times like, I don't know if you guys ever played like mini golf in one of those like black light environments.
2: Shit's cool. Yes. Like, like, falls exactly. in Albuquerque. The best. There you
1: go. <laughs> there you go. So like, that is the vibe of this movie at times. And again, that is not meant to be a negative. It's meant to be like, nah, we're just going to build this crazy ass environment where you're going to look around, it's neon shit everywhere, and you're going to have fun. Yeah, no, that's, that's the convent. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it, it clearly uh, was made to be a fun movie. And it is if it's it was, it's it trying to say some deep things about abortion and organized religion. It'd be a complete failure, but thankfully that's not what they were going for.
1: It's there. It's there if you want to look for it, but uh it is not the focal point.
0: Well, you don't need to look for it. It kind of it kind of gives it to you on <laughs> literally on a platter.
2: Oh, that's one of my favorite things. Her legend being like, oh, they aborted your baby and that's why they're and like, no, he's a civil engineer in Peoria. That
0: was such a good line. That was a great line. I wrote that line down. Well, that's that's something that I think you know. There are, I, I I should come up with a phrase for this because it instinctively makes sense to me. It's the idea that like there are actors in movies like this that you look up because like you pull up IMDb while you're watching the movie and be like, I wonder if this person did anything else because they get you they get you a little interested. There are many actors I've never looked up, and m- millions probably ninety nine percent of the, the a lot of the actors I see in horror films. I'm like, oh, okay. But every, you know, when you watch something and it doesn't mean that you thought they were outstanding, it's just like you, they were talented enough for you to be curious. There are a handful of performances in this film, in particular, Megan Perry, who plays Mo, the goth girl, like she has such good line readings in a couple of different places that I I looked her up. I looked a couple of these actors up because I was like, what else did they do? Because this is actually, this is some good work. And so I think that's, that's kind of one of the, the biggest benefits of this film is that it? It has the sort of actors that, like you, IMDb to the side while you're watching the movie because you're like, eh, that was that was good. That was good too. Did this person do anything? They didn't. Oh, that kind of sucks. And it's like it's a very short emotional journey, but you definitely you definitely feel, you know, when when you look them up and don't see that they did a ton else, you know, you're, you're actually a little disappointed because you enjoyed them so much in the thing that you were watching.
2: Yes, I I think it's very selfish of the actors not to do more. So I I would just like to put I agree. that out there.
0: I agree. Clearly, clearly, we should all quit our day jobs and become casting directors.
2: Yeah. Wait, don't don't touch our hearts and disappear. Come on.
0: Justice, hashtag justice for Mo.
1: Do not erase justice. the fact that Joanna Canton was Fez's love interest on the that 70s show, so come on.
0: I'm sorry, that's true. I, I shouldn't have done that.
2: Yeah, and I clicked on that, it said best known for, I was like, oh man, because she's so great in this movie.
0: There are, yeah, there are a couple of people that are really killing it here, and I think that's that's almost I almost have to ding the movie for that because they turn some of the better characters into zombies pretty yes. early or demons and you're like no I wanted to see more of that person like they were really crushing that role they were doing such a good job with it and then they're just you know a demon for the rest of the film it's sort of like oh couldn't we have turned that other person into a demon cuz they they weren't doing that great it's just it's a little thing but when when mo is the first one to go spoiler alert i was like god damn it i wanted like at least 20 more minutes of her
1: and what's
2: so, hard
0: is Oh
1: god,
2: Nope. No, sorry. Just do we think maybe Mo should have been the final girl?
0: I mean, yes. I think so. <laughs> that would be, if I made that movie, Mo would have been the final girl, and I think it it must have awakened some sort of like secret goth, you know, wannabe thing that I had because I was like, yeah, Mo, you fucking got this, man. Get them all.
2: Well, if anyone was going to take the torch from AJ Barbeau's character, I mean, it's going to be Mo.
1: Very true. I was waiting for Moe's character to somehow be tied to Adrian Barbeau. I, I, I before like this is early on, but um, I had a theory that like Moe was going to be somehow a descendant or something of that nature and was going back for that reason. So I agree that first uh, the first loss of Mo is, is tough and it's tougher because exactly what you said, Monagle, there are some people doing some great things with the roles and Moe is the best role of the entire film. And it comes mm-hmm. out in the scene where she's even sacrificed because it's a great commentary on posers and it's a great commentary on people who know what they're talking about versus the people who don't. And you have Mo, the, the true goth and the true person who understands everything about her personality, tied down by all these fake goths. Again, the one that works at Dairy Cream, who is now talking this and wilst and all these things and calls himself the dark one. It's a brilliant little section on uh, on posers, and it's, it's a brilliant little section on imposters and things of that nature, and it has some great commentary, and then you just lose Mo in that moment. You lose Mo right as she's doing her yeah. best work, and you're like, I love this character, I'm in love with them, and now they're a demon. I do think it's a little bit of a negative still, though, then we get demon Mo, and... Listen, the action is not great in this film at sometimes, uh, Obviously, there was a little lack of stunt coordinators and we had to do a lot of cutting around to figure that stuff out. But I still kind of did like Demon Mo. I wanted more of Human Mo. Demon Mo is still a thing, though.
0: I hear you. You have threatened for a very long time to do a project, and I won't say what, that involves us basically arguing passionately about very small things that nobody else should care about. And I think if we do get that off the ground, my first thing will be why Mo should have been the final girl in the convent because I feel very strongly about this. Thank you. Well, I'm going to, we got time for one more question. Um, So we're going to end the way that we always do on the show, which is talking about the reception of this film um, and where it goes from here. The convent, uh, Steph, as you alluded to, kind of had a a bit of a rocky landing because it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2000, which is in and of itself a bit of a throwback because now I don't think Sundance would play something like this. They can, they have access to all the art house, the art house horror that Donato loves so much. Um, but premiered at Sundance in 2000, the distributor went out of business, which meant two years between when it premiered and when it actually got a DVD
2: release. Oh, I'm sorry. Can were... I just say one thing? Oh yeah, go ahead. The same thing happened to Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, like the distributing company closed down the day of. And this one, I, I feel like does have a little bit of uh, Mistress of the Dark nods in it i just want to say that
0: <laughs> no i love that and, and it makes you feel like the come on this if you're smart enough to pick out the kind of horror films you should be going you shouldn't be going out of business make good choices make better choices these are the two we need we're mad at actors that keep that stop acting the way we want them to and we're mad at distributors <laughs> that go out of business because clearly those are things that can control both
2: <laughs> exactly
0: but so the took two years to get to home video and then they were primed. They were primed for a big 20 year anniversary release. Um, I believe it was synapse that had the rights, purchased the rights that were putting together like a big DVD release from the year 2000. And unfortunately COVID hit and there's a really good interview in Rue Morgue, which I'll try and link to in the article where um, the company basically says like, look, we found the original footage and it's in a, it's in a facility in California that we can't get into because it's shut down because of COVID. So This film, if you look around, if you read kind of the, you know, around the internet and look for folks that are writing about it, it's gained a bit of a following. There's a a critic named Corey Dana who wrote a 10 page feature on it that includes interviews with all the various cast members in a a zine called Exploitation Nation. And it kind of like it keeps bumping up against this point where it is a bona fide cult classic, but it's these distribution issues that keep popping up and keep hitting it and preventing it from really getting over that hump. So, my question is since we know that Synapse has the rights, is a synapse release for the convent the thing that is going to make this sort of like a household cult horror film. And Steph, I'll start with you.
2: Oh, um, I mean, I certainly hope so. It can only help. I mean, how many people discover demon when thanks to vinegar syndrome, you know? So uh, unfortunately I've never been good at predicting the popularity of things, but um, like you said, it, it, it hit streaming a couple of years ago and I just started recommending it to people. And I think the worst I heard back was like, it was silly, but it was okay. It was pretty fun. That was the worst I heard back. And with horror movies, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it has a really good chance. And also, I'm selfish and I want to own that Blu ray. So, yes, it'd be a make so much money for Synapse. They won't even remember Suspiria. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> now, I, I agree. I'm jumping on that bandwagon. And just to the sense that I tweeted out earlier, you know, as I watch these films, I just tweet them out and say, I'm watching this film because of this guest. And just to germ up a little bit of talk, should we say, for our episodes coming out. And the first three tweets back were like one was Ted Gagan, who we all know, Ted. And Ted has been on the show talking about Zombie Ass, Monogal's favorite episode. But oh, Ted's yes. first thing was like, holy shit, is this on blue? Like, did you find this on Blu-ray? Because I, I need to own this. How are you watching it? And of course, my answer immediately is it is a quote unquote restored version on Amazon Prime. You can watch it for free on Tubi and IMD TV, but I am happy to pay the $4 to rent it and uh, give Mike, a, you know, 30 cents of my rental, I guess. But mm. it, there's obviously an immediate desire to see this thing on blue and like, you know, you have horror fans, not just, you know, general public, the horror fans are me. like, wait, what the hell the, can I find this? Is this finally out? I need to own this. And D- Steph to what you just said, vinegar syndrome before somebody immediately followed up Ted's tweet with like, this looks some like something that vinegar syndrome should put out. And I agree. This is something vinegar syndrome should put out. And I know we talk about the 1980s, 70s, 90s, like those are the movies they usually aim for the things that are quote unquote, truly lost. But when you're also talking about a film that has a single review on Rotten Tomatoes from 2004, and even back then, I, I just want to read Eric's little blurb and you know what Eric Snyder said about it. Um, this is his big thing, to stress everything that we have been talking about, about the gore, everything about it. Eric's big takeaway was, end the blood. There's plenty of it. Much of it is fluorescent. People's heads get chopped off. They're smashed by things. They're shot full of bullets. And it's also fantastically bloody like an itchy and scratchy cartoon that you soon realize the intention was not to make you sick, but to make you laugh though. It still may not be for the squeamish and that's the convent. And you know, that kind of film when it came out and especially at Sundance. Yeah. I get why it kind of uh, took a little while to come out on release and it took a a little while to be appreciated even because that even at that time, it's hard for those films to succeed, but they can succeed now. There are so many avenues. Streaming is easy. And we're doing a lot of restorations. I, I, I hope that when this, when the pandemic is over, over when things can open back up, when things can be re- resurfaced, I guess at this point, if we're talking about a literally a film that is locked away, that the convent is one of those because there's going to be a much larger, larger audience out there. And the people that remember it from 2000, they're still so excited to talk about it. That That's a Testament right there. It It's the same kind of movie of, You know, even if we want to talk about the Poughkeepsie tapes, uh, different scenario, but still, it's a movie that sat around that everyone's like, yo, where the hell is this thing? We need to see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the convent, if we have people like Eric, Ted, uh, a few other people jumped into my feed to be like, holy shit, I saw this when it came out. Like, what? I haven't heard anyone talk about it since. Well, we're talking about it since. And I I don't know. I hope other people do talk, talk about it since even after. That's not how you say that. But still, you get what I'm saying. That's all right. I'll give you points for sticking the
0: landing. Yeah. And the only thing I'll add to the conversation too is actually John Squires, uh, editor in chief of bloody disgusting had a thread today. That was, that I, I thought was really, really spot on for the kind of stuff we talk about on the show where he basically said, I wish there was a way for you to give people rentals online. I wish there was a way for you on any of the major platforms, you know, and we're talking major platforms, Amazon, Apple, Google movies, etc. for me to rent a film and have that rental be delivered to somebody's email address so I can basically take my favorite movies and go, hey, fucking watch this. And I feel like this is the kind of film that would benefit from that most of all, because one person, <coughs> Steph, would definitely like share that with as many different people as they could. And Donato, you and I have those movies as well. And even kind of like that barrier of it, it, it recreates the environment um, of where you would like rent something and then loan it to somebody and then return it, right? Like that, that's the kind of thing you need. It's the champion element. It's the people that are going to make you watch it, that are going to give you a reason, of financial incentive to sit down and watch it. You know, I'm hoping that when it does hit the physical media market in a way that people are really excited about, that you will, you know, not to quote, mystery science 33,000, but they'll, people will circulate the tapes and you'll see people that like borrow it and then watch it and then need to own their own copy and then lend it out. And it kind of will have that longevity and that word of mouth because of it.
2: Yeah, it it is an ultimate word of mouth movie for sure.
0: So I have you on the hook Steph for, uh, if they ever come out with a rental service, you have to rent it and give it out to like, I don't know, 50 different people.
2: Oh, no problem whatsoever. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, that is it. That is our show today on the convent. And I want to say thank you, Steph, for, for joining us on this adventure, for talking all things nuns and guns. Um, if people want to follow your work, if they want to see what you're up to or you know, make sure that they're not going to miss any of your writing or new podcast episodes and stuff as they come out, where are the best places on social media to go?
2: Um, you can follow me on Twitter where I'm scrawfish and I have my little blog website link there too.
0: Awesome. Donato, where do people go to find out about you, friend?
1: Since no one knows how to find me, and this many episodes in, I've never said this before, you can find me at at DonatoBomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram. That is pretty much all you have to do, and you will find where I'm writing, what I'm writing, when I'm live streaming, where I'm live streaming, and everything else that we do. Also, I will say it first before Monaco does, because I don't know, I feel like we just take turns doing this. Certified Forgotten, we have a Patreon, we have a website, we got lots of things going on, so please do find us, subscribe, donate if, if you can, if you want to, become one of our board game players, uh, make us review things, things of that nature, and uh, yeah, just see the cool things we're cooking up, because I, I I might be biased, but I just think we are the best up-and-coming website on the internet.
0: I have, I have heard in the past week from a few people that sort of quietly reached out and been like, you know, you guys are doing pretty good work, so that's really that's really exciting to hear. When other writers are basically like, "Hey, nice job, Walter," I'm like, "All right, my name's not Walter, but thank you." As for myself, you can follow me on social media at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. But definitely, like Danato said, follow the two of us on Twitter, if only because we're going to be sharing everything that our writers do on the website and with some of the articles that we have in the pipeline. Oh man, some of the articles we have coming up these are these are films that I nobody's writing about, and if they are, fuck them because our stuff's better. So. Just gonna throw that out there. Unless Steph wrote about it, in which case that's good too. <laughs> is that the way you promote? I don't know. Is that is that what a, how a good yeah. editor make promotes make sure you belittle
1: work? everyone else and only support us? That is exactly how you do it.
0: Okay, just making sure. <laughs> Fuck you guys. I'm going home. You're cool. You come too. That's kind of that's the certified forgotten ethos. I think in a nutshell. Well, Stephanie, it was great to have you on the show. We want to say thank you so much for for bringing us this film so we could take a deep dive into it. And uh, I'm sure that this is not. Not the only film you have with five or fewer reviews that you'll that you can think of. So we'll probably have to have you back on sometime soon to talk about something else.
2: Yeah, I don't know what you're implying there, but it'd be a pleasure and an honor. <laughs> Thank you so much,
0: Donato. Take us out, sir. Demon nuns. Weirdly appropriate. Yeah,
1: all right. All right, all right.